This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Last year, there were over half a million registered players in our minor league system. The hockey, as we all know, remains popular and is the leading sport in our country when it comes to TV viewership. And of course, people, and especially parents, are willing to shell out dollars uh, for this sport. Now, hockey also has a darker side, which we have witnessed and reported on here on CKNW when uh, we were talking about all those hearings surrounding Hockey Canada. Well, in a report released last year, Hockey Canada said there were more than 900 documented or alleged incidents of on-ice discrimination verbal taunts, insults, intimidation across all levels and age groups. When it came to allegations that weren't witnessed by an official and required investigation, 47% of the reported discrimination was race-related. It's an issue Cindy, her husband, and her son Zach know very well. Zach has been playing hockey since he was five. The 16-year-old of South Asian descent played in the Coquitlam minor hockey system. Zach has been dealing with some level of racism from his teammates, their parents, and coaches, according to his parents. Things started to decline in 2019. We are now joined by Cindy, Zach's mom. We are not using their real names so we can protect their privacy. Cindy, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jazz. Uh, thank you for having us here. Uh, I know this has been a, a tremendously challenging time for you and your family, and specifically your, your, your son, Zach. Can you walk us through what transpired uh, for, for him and, and your family? Uh, my son, Zach, he started playing hockey when he was five. And on and off, we would hear racial slurs on the ice, and we would make complaints, and, you know, things wouldn't really get dealt with, and it would sort of be brushed under. And then in 2019, when Zach was around 11 or 12, we were in a parent chat group, and uh, it was a WhatsApp group where parents talked about if we could share rides and things like that. And then one day, a dad had posted a KKK video. I was just in shock. I had to show a coworker to, like, ask, like, is this okay? Like, I knew it wasn't okay, but I was just, like, so shocked. Afterwards, was even worse is that none of the parents sort of said that this was wrong. A lot of parents joined in and made other racist jokes. So I had decided to make an official complaint with the association. Mm-hmm. They said they did an investigation, and parents got a warning letter. However, once we made that complaint, we noticed um, that we were started to get treated differently. Right away, the coaches, the managers were all sort of upset with us because we made a complaint and we weren't accepting an apology. So the parent who made the video stated that he did it by accident and apologized and that we were supposed to just accept his apology but I thought this was really harmful, Mm -hmm. and uh, the association had to do something. So it was really shocking to us. Like, these were people we went to tournaments with. We sat around a table at at a restaurant having meals with them, and and then it was really uh, scary to sort of see that their beliefs or they took something like this as a joke. So after that, the new season started, and we were in another hockey group with none of these parents, and uh, the coach's son said to my son, oh, you're not a troublemaker. That's what the association told my dad. So then my son, Zach, he shared that with me, and I asked the coach, and he said, yes, the association had said to watch out for you and your son. The year after, again, we were placed with the same coach, that was with us in 2019, and another assistant coach, ice helper's kid, would make comments on the ice like, all lives matter. At the end of the season, my son was punched by him. However, I was told there would be an investigation, and there was no investigation done. 
I sent letters to the president and nothing was done. I was ignored. So I decided, both my husband and I, because we have two sons in hockey, mm-hmm. that we were going to move associations because we were being ignored. Like, And they were making malicious, false allegations around my son at that time as well. Like, They had said that he had spat on a team uh, player during a game, and this was, was during COVID. So we were like, wow, this is a really serious allegation. And there was a video of the game, and that was proven to be not true. And I had asked if they can share with me who the parent was that lied or made this accusation, and they said they had to keep it confidential. And I just wanted to point out that when I made the complaint against the man who posted the KKK video, our name was released to him. And when I had asked why, they said that he had a right to know who was making so you left the Coquitlam Hockey Association there, and you moved next moved next door to the Port Coquitlam Minor Hockey Association. Yes. Was that any better? We had no issues for the first year. Like it was better, uh, and and my son liked it much better. He liked the coaches. He liked the kids, and he felt better. And we thought we could just get a fresh start here. And our motto at this time was let's just keep our heads down and play hockey. Um, you know, we're not going to make complaints if anything happens because we realized nothing was really ever done about it and we were sort of um, made to leave in a way. So everything went fine the first year. This year, my son went to play hockey. He went with his dad and two other friends that came to watch him. Um, The first round, he had a penalty, so he was ejected from the game. Now, our coach has written a letter and defended that penalty. He said it wasn't a malicious hit. They were skating, and the player turned at the last minute, and then my son sort of bumped him from behind. Uh, And there was no issues. My son took his penalty. The coach talked to him. The coach said, we'll see you after the game. And then my son went with his two friends and my husband upstairs to the cafeteria area. What transpired at that restaurant upstairs? The man who posted the KKK video walked past my son's table where he was with his father and two friends having some food and watching the game uh, and said to him, you brown piece of and called him other swear words and went to the bathroom. Then my son said to my husband, Dad, I can't believe what's his name just said this to me. So my husband said, just leave it. If he says anything else, tell him to F off as he comes back, but just leave it for now. The man came back, walked past the table again. This time my husband was paying attention and again swore at my son, called him expressive and walked away back to his bar. At this time, my husband intervened and said, why would you talk to a kid like that? And that's when the other father, earlier when I explained there was an ice helper who... Mm-hmm whose son had punched my son, came right up to my husband, nose to nose, and said, what the F do you want? And then all these parents sort of came along, and they were telling my son and my husband that they are not supposed to be here. They should leave right now. And then they were kind of confused. And these are all white parents telling them to get out of here. And this is a public community center. Cindy, carry on with that story, because I found it quite interesting in regards to what was what transpired with your son and and your husband as well. What happened next? So then uh, the other parent came up to my husband, nose to nose, very close, saying, what the F do you want? And then the other dad, the KKK dad, came up too, and my husband was like, I'm talking to him. And then that father who posted the KKK video asked my husband if he wanted to go to the parking lot, and my husband's like, okay. So as my husband and son were walking away, There were two other kids there that we had taken to hockey with us, so my husband stepped back to gather the other two boys. At this point, all these parents from Coquitlam surrounded my, circled my son and my husband and started pushing my son around. My son kept saying, get away from my dad, and at this time, the dad who posted the KKK video put his fist up and started walking towards them. And... My husband thought he was coming to hit him. However, he went and punched my son in the head. And then after being punched in the head, my son reacted and punched back. And at that time, that's when the police 
were called. There was a mother screaming, saying that um, we that you're a troublemaker to my son, and this is why we kicked you out of the association, which was very false because we chose to leave. Would you uh, have put your son in hockey knowing what you know today or at least with the experience that you've gone through? Uh, no, I wouldn't because it's been very traumatic. It's been a very toxic culture, and he's had to deal with so much racism I would definitely not have put my children in hockey if I knew that this is what they would have to deal with at such a young age. I'm assuming your son or his siblings play other sports. Have you had any other difficulty in other sports um, in regards to this type of, type of uh, toxic environment? No, my younger son plays uh, football, my daughter plays basketball, and we haven't experienced what we experienced in hockey. I'm I'm just trying to trying to sort of absorb everything you've said. Um, does your son still want to play hockey after all this? Um, it's he does. He really loves being in the hockey. Uh, however, when there's so much negative attention, he does think about quitting. Uh, however, every time I take him to a game or a practice, he comes back with a huge smile on his face and says, "Mom, I just love hockey so much. I just love to play." Uh, what do you want to see happen now? I would like there to be more easier ways to make um, complaints if there are any racism, um, and sometimes and for associations to take it seriously. If the Coquitlam Association dealt with the incident in 2019 seriously, the same man wouldn't have the confidence to come and call my son racial slurs and punch him. We had left. He could have taken that as a win for himself. So associations need to also educate the ice helpers, the coaches, and uh, about racism and, and make it more inclusive. So our kids don't go to play hockey. And, you know, one of the things is that you just have to endure the racial slurs to play hockey and that's not okay and that should never be okay. Cindy thank you so much uh, for your time today I appreciate you sharing your story thank you so much. Thank you for having me today. Let's talk about Twitter. What would we do if Twitter dies? Now, it might sound a little dramatic. The prospect of Twitter's demise under Elon Musk's uh, tumultuous ownership isn't too far-fetched. Recently, the billionaire reinstated several banned accounts, including that of former U.S. President Donald Trump, uh, who was permanently excluded from the site in 2021 following the January 6th U.S. Capitol at- uh, attack. Today, Elton John left the site. He joins other celebrities like Whoopi Goldberg, who have left the site as well. The unpredictable uh, nature of Musk's decision-making paired with mass staff resignations and layoffs that led uh, Twitter's most dedicated users to question when they should break up with the platform. Well, last month, employees of Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, joined a virtual brainstorming session to discuss how to build the next Twitter. Will there be a next Twitter? Joining me now to talk about uh, present Twitter and perhaps Twitter's future rivals is Andy Barr, technology and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com. Good afternoon, Andy. Hi, Jazz. <laughs> you know, you've talked. I talked about uh, Elon Musk the, the the first few weeks uh, uh, during his uh, leadership, and then I think we've uh, I've kind of detoxed off that for a few weeks. But I thought it was time to come back and chat with you uh, in regards to where Twitter is and and potential uh, competition. First of all, I guess your thoughts on where Twitter is uh, since our last conversation. I mean, is is it getting any better in your mind? Well, the good thing was he he suspended that the whole subscription service that he did because he got all those imposter accounts. So I think he learned his lesson. He tried to flip the script in like a week and it didn't really work out well. So he's going to roll that out again, Jazz. And what he said is when he pulls out those blue check marks, he's going to have different colors, one for governments, one for kind of celebrities and one for the paid one that you can get. What's unclear right now, Jazz, and this is what I'm really waiting for. This this could be the make or break for Twitter is if he takes that blue check mark away from the people that already have it, uh, distinguished people, celebrities, journalists and whatnot. I think if he takes that away and says you have to pay for it, 
I think that might be the thing that actually breaks Twitter and people might start to leave. Now, are, are other companies viewing this as an opportunity? Well, absolutely. Look at look at Meta, Facebook. Uh, they're just salivating at this because Mark Zuckerberg went all in on the metaverse and that hasn't really worked out uh, very well for him. He even created the parent company and called it Meta, which is so meta for him to do. But um, he's not doing well. And he's looking at Facebook. It's older people that tend to use it. He needs to give Meta its sexy back. And so they're looking at this as an opportunity to take those Twitter followers. But however, Meta has no original ideas, Jazz. Their, their sense of innovation is imitation. And I think that's what they might do with Twitter in the future. Hmm. Uh, there have been other sites, uh, Mastodon. I think there's uh, Hive Social. Uh, do you see them as potential uh, you know, uh, giant killers when it comes to Twitter? Not yet, or not really. I, I joined both of them, Mastodon, Hive Social, Counter Social. And you know, Jess, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. The Mastodon was one of the worst impressions I ever had of joining a site. It was very complicated. And for the average person, I just think that they are just going to get frustrated and leave. The, the big question, I think, is who is go- if, if Twitter dies, who's going to take um, the pieces? Is it going to be a big juggernaut like Meta? Or will it be a startup? Uh, Ex-Twitter employees are also looking at creating the next Twitter. So there's a lot of people out there with fresh ideas who know how to build these kind of platforms. The question is, and here's the problem for us, the users, there's just too much choice, Jazz. It's the paradox of choice. We think that if we have more choice, we're happier. But if you ever went to Baskin Robbins and you have 32 flavors of ice cream and you have to pick one, it's frustrating. And I think it would have been so much nicer if we just had maybe three choices of social media um, sites to, to join. But Instead, we're going to have dozens and dozens, and I think that's the issue and why a lot of people stay with Twitter because it's tried, tested, and true, but who knows if it'll be around in the future. Even if it does implode, I can't see the government allowing Google, uh, Facebook, the more traditional social media sites to actually own Twitter because it's more consolidation and concentration. I think there is a bit of blowback on big tech at this point that they wouldn't allow that. Yeah, I don't think they would let them buy Twitter, but I think they're going to try to create the next Twitter by just basically copying Twitter. So right now, Meta's idea, their their idea is like, okay, it'll be like Instagram, except instead of photos and videos, it'll just be text. And we'll use the Instagram technology and we'll build a separate app. That's their idea. And if you look at Meta, when Snapchat came around, their idea was, we'll create our own Instagram stories. When Tinder came around, they're like, well, we'll just create our own Facebook dating. When Craigslist was a threat, there's like, oh, we'll just create our own marketplace with Facebook Marketplace. So essentially, Meta is a super app. Facebook is now trying to become a super app. And I'm, and I'm quite perplexed that the government allowed that to happen already. It is way too big. They shouldn't own Facebook Twitter, or sorry, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, WhatsApp. I think that is just too big. Um, but of course, they're going to try to get those Twitter um, users if it does indeed go down. And when I lived in China, there was always WeChat, which is really Twitter, a bit of Facebook, but it was also had this, um, I guess, commerce side to it where you could use it as, as payment uh, for goods and services. Could we see something like that finally arrive to North America, which would be the all-encompassing app, which you can use for everything you do now in regards to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of that. Could we not get uh, an app that would do all of that plus Twitter and you could use it as uh, e-commerce where you could pay for goods and services? That's Elon Musk's dream. That's actually one of the reasons why he bought Twitter. He thought that that would be uh, help him accelerate to creating a super app like that. And I think he really wanted to call it X.com, which was his original idea way back when he uh, started with PayPal. But I don't know if the regulators are going to allow that. But if you look across the globe, Jazz, one thing that you're seeing is social commerce. This is this is like all these additional revenue streams that are coming through social media. And you, you see this big in China right now where these influencers now influencing people to buy things. It's like the shopping channel 2.0. And uh, so I think whatever social media platform that goes to replace Twitter They're going to have to make money somehow. And I think they're going to try to leverage this new social commerce that's happening with the influencers who influences people's decision making and purchasing decisions. Um, But, you know, 
social media as a subscription service. That is interesting what Elon Musk is trying to do here. And I just don't know if the public is ready to pay to be on social media. That's just a real foreign concept for a lot of people out it there. It truly is. And then when you got someone like Elon who is just unpredictable, it makes it even, do you really want to be handing over your credit card information to a guy like Elon? So it's, it's going to be very interesting. Andy, thank you so much. Thanks, Jazz. Rivers, mountains, volcanoes, certain rock formations in indigenous cultures are sentient beings, uh, essentially living things uh, that can feel pleasure and pain. From the perspective of indigenous communities around the world, nature and its component trees, plants and rocks are our kin, not something that you can own. Well, UBC legal scholar wants us to consider Stanley Park as a legal person. Dr. Alexander Flynn is asking, what if we wanted, uh, if, what if we granted Stanley Park personhood? We can protect it from development and further the conversation surrounding reconciliation. Dr. Alexander Flynn is the Associate Professor at the University of British Columbia at the Peter A. Allard School of Law. Dr. Flynn, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is a, a, a fascinating a topic. Um, when, uh, if we were to grant Stanley Park personhood, what would it mean? It really depends. Uh, it depends on how it's done. Um, so legal personhood has been used around the world for different reasons, and it's been implemented in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, so you can have legal personhood that actually transfers the stewardship of a green space to a whole new set of actors, um, in some cases, Indigenous governments or Indigenous actors, or you can have legal personhood that doesn't really change much at all. So the devil's in the details. Uh, and I guess the question is, what would be gained if we did that in the sense that we have a park board today, a city hall today? that is elected, uh, and people may not like a political, uh, a particular government, but they have an opportunity to vote them out, to speak out against them in, in, a, in a democracy. Uh, if we were to grant Stanley Park personhood, what could we or could, not, could we do that would change what we can do today? It would change how it was governed. So, um, you know, if, if legal, legal personhood was granted under um, Coast Salish laws, mm-hmm. So it was Coast Salish leaders who were um, actually governing the space. Then they would steward the space according to their legal traditions. Um, So that would be really different. And part of it is to recognize that Stanley Park was originally um, an Indigenous area that was used for homes and communities. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so in this case, it it would be to potentially advance reconciliation? Yeah, it could, it could right or wrong. Hmm. Uh, has, in regards to corporations, do they have personhood now? Um, yes, so corporations are, are legal persons as well. Uh, and, and do you know of any um, entity in, in sort of Western society that has, or a park that has been sort of, uh, is considered a legal person? Yes. So in New Zealand, there's a park, a park called uh, Te Urawara mm-hmm. that ob- obtained personhood status in 2014. So it is a legal person and it's, uh, it's stewards, the people who run it, are the local uh, Maori community. Uh, does this, uh, if, one, if one were to do that, uh, does it not perhaps... Um uh, not provide the flexibility that perhaps residents may want in regards to what their view may be uh, for how that's, that park is run. What I mean by that, we're having debates about, you know, uh, uh, whether or not a bike lane should be taken out. Uh, should there be greater commerce uh, within Stanley Park? Uh, those types of conversations. Uh, if we were to do this, and let's say it would go under uh, some sort of leadership from the Indigenous community, would they then be able to say, look, we're not going to be doing any of that, we're going to keep it natural as possible, and we would have to accept that then? You know, I think that's that's really far down the mm-hmm. path. Um, so what I was writing about was the thought experiment. You know, is it something that should be on the table? Um, and the reason that I, I started thinking about it was because of the colonial audit that's taking place about Stanley Park. Um, by the park board, 
um, and also the implementation of UNDRIP by mm-hmm. the city of Vancouver. So it's just a thought experiment. Is it is this something that should also be on the table as a possibility? These, um, in terms of the details, that we don't know yet. Are these the types of conversations we're going to have to have when we talk about? Uh, and I recall, you know, at that point being in, in the legislature in British Columbia as an MLA, and we had a significant conversation about UNDRIP. It did pass. Um, uh, it was a unanimous vote. Uh, but is this part of the conversation we're going to have to have uh, when we talk about? Uh, trying to implement uh, UNDRIP, but I know it's hard to sort of define sometimes, but this is part of that conversation. Yeah, I think what what UNDRIP um, reminds us is that Indigenous communities have their own systems of law. And in general, although you can't paint them all with one brush at all, um, the Indigenous laws tend to uh, respect nature um, and think uh, generationally about the environment, about sustainability, in a way that our, our, our Canadian system of law doesn't always do. So in terms of your question about, you know, will this mean that Stanley Park will be developed? I'm, I'm not too worried about that, actually. I think Indigenous communities have a really good track record of um, thinking about the environment um, more so than under Canadian law. Uh, you gave the example of New Zealand. Have there been any sort of ex- similar examples in Canada? Yes, so there's a couple of examples. So um, the Magpie River in Quebec um, was granted legal personhood status by with a shared initiative by local governments and Indigenous communities. Um, and then closer to home, um, uh, an Indigenous community has also granted personhood status under their system of laws for the Fraser River. Hmm. Is that, so is that going to court, the one in regards to the Fraser River? No, neither of them have gone to court, um, from my understanding. Um, so, you know, it's hard to know how the courts will treat these, uh, these declarations um, until the time comes. Um, in the United States, there have been grants of legal personhood that courts have struck down. Um, so it remains to be seen what will happen in Canada. Well, well it's a fascinating conversation and one, um, I think you're right, that we are going to have to tackle and, uh, and address as well. Thank you so much for your time. Merry Christmas to My you. pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Last September, we had director Kat Jame on the show to talk about her documentary, The Grizzly Truth, which made its debut at the Vancouver International Film Festival. Now, following its uh, massive success, the documentary about how Vancouver lost its NBA franchise will be making its way to theatres across Canada. Now, Mornings with Simi producer Jason Manoas uh, caught up with Kat to talk about the film's reception and theatrical debut. All right, so thanks for joining me today, Kat. Thanks for having me, Jason. All right. So my first question to you, I've seen pictures, I've seen videos from the reception of the film. People have watched it. How has the reception been for the film so far? Uh, it's been pretty, uh, pretty overwhelming. Um, you know, uh, we had a really great premiere in Vancouver, gone into play a few more festivals. Um, but uh, yeah, the reception of uh, the film and, you know, the suspects who I investigate has been really, it's been really cool to see uh, the audience's response to to these subjects and to these people. Um, and yeah, I'm just excited to be able to share the film with uh, a broader audience now. And now without give, uh, giving anything, giving too much away, what have people been saying so far uh, from the people who have watched the film? Uh, what have yeah. they been saying that has shocked them the most or something that has surprised them about the, the documentary so far? Well, um, my favorite is when people say things like, man, why do you have to make me like Stu Jackson or Steve Francis? Those are the, the two. And, and then I get so happy when uh, when people say that. But that I've been getting many emails, many messages. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people have been saying that to me and the rest of my team. How have Steve Francis, the other players and the other ones uh, involved with this project, how have they reacted to the documentary so far? Um, so Sharif was asking for it. I haven't talked to Sharif yet, but I know he was asking for it. So, uh, you know, I sent it to his agent. So I'm not sure. I have to follow up and see what Sharif thought about it. Um, but um, the players who were the main players who have seen it were the ones who came to the, the screening in Vancouver. Um, and they all, you know, absolutely loved it. Um what was really cool is afterwards seeing, you know, the 
the love of the Grizzlies, um, you know, uh, in that crowd, in that theater, and the energy that the audience brought, um, I think it was really inspirational. And a lot of the players like Antonio, Antonio Harvey and Tony Mass, they're kind of, and, and yeah, George Lynch, they were all like, Let, let's keep the momentum going. How do we keep the Grizzlies, you know, love and dream alive? And so I've been, you know, um, just trying to brainstorm conversations as to, you know, how, how can we, how can we maybe like have more reunions in the future? How can we bring the community uh, that loved the Grizzlies, that grew up through the Grizzlies uh, together? And so, yeah, so those, the, the Grizzly players who were, who were in the theater, loved the film, were inspired by it, want to give back to the community in Vancouver even more. Steve Francis also really loved it. Um, all the players who were at VIF hadn't seen the film before. So I was honestly like, really nervous <laughs> um because i wasn't sure like how they would respond um yeah. steve francis was sitting yeah. right in front of me the entire screening and that was so nerve-wracking because i wasn't sure how what his reaction would be um you know spoiler alert the scene where you know i track him down it, he he was laughing so hard in the like in the theater which is really cool to see and i was like oh thank goodness like i think i think he's liking this um but no, Steve, I mean, I'm so I'm in Toronto right now premiering, uh, the, you know, here to uh, promote uh, the theatrical release in Canada. We're premiering in Toronto on Saturday. Steve is here with me. I just bumped into him in the at the hotel. We just kind oh. of checked in. Um, so, yeah, so he's here to help, you know, uh, you know, again, share his story, help promote the film. Um, and uh, yeah, so he's uh, thankfully, Steve, you know, I think I've gotten the approval from Steve. Yeah, that's fantastic. I remember the last time we talked, um, I asked Steve about that. And he said, yeah, that was probably one of his favorite things about <laughs> you trying to get him on the film where you literally went to a fan signing. Um, and that's how you were able to get him. So now, as you mentioned, the Grizzly Truth is now is now set to hit theaters in Toronto, Ottawa, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, and in Vancouver, Richmond, Langley. What will a theatrical run? Uh, how will a theatrical run impact this film? Just, you know, one of my goals when I made this film was to really um, showcase how there is a desire and a need for another NBA team. And so, like, I'm really hoping that people come out, support the film, show, you know, investors in Vancouver that there is an appetite for the NBA, show the NBA that there is an appetite there's a need and a want and a desire for a second team in Canada. So I, again, like I'm just, you know, I'm excited to share the film, but I'm really hoping that people come out to support and, you know, are excited to you know bring back the Grizzlies for, you know, this limited time across Canada. A lot of your projects have been focused locally. Um, does the success of this film open up a potential project for maybe a Canada wide project or even an international project? Does that open something up for, uh, for some uh, director like you? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, Finding the Country, to be honest, you know, did that for me. Um, I'm working on a film uh, right now that uh, I can't talk too much about, but um, it's, you know, it, it, it's a it's a bigger film in its scope. Um, and, you know, this film hopefully will do the same thing for, for my filmmaking career. This film took a long time to produce and to direct. Uh, what would be your message to aspiring directors to producing a film and a documentary like this? Mm hmm. I think the, uh, you know, just always lead with your heart. And I think that's, um, that's something that I've tried to, to do in my work. Um, especially when I'm trying to convince people to be a part of <laughs> my films. Um, and I think that's kind of why Steve Francis said yes. Why Bryant Reeves Big Country said yes. Why all these NBA players said yes. Um, it's because, you know, I really... I approach them, uh, you know, uh, you know, I approach them and uh, in a very empathetic way. And I, you know, kind of opened my heart and said, you know, I'm a child. I explained my backstory and was, you know, tried to be as genuine. You know, I was as genuine um, when I asked them. And, and the reasons why I asked them was to, you know, I want to share your story to help better understand the story of the Vancouver Grizzlies. And thankfully, so many Vancouver Grizzly players, including Steve Francis, uh, said yes to to my request. Now, um, if I don't see Cat Jamie on the part ownership of the Vancouver Grizzlies <laughs> when we get our team back, 
going to be uh, pretty mad if I don't see that <laughs> name there. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me, Kat, and uh, wish you, you all, all the luck, all the success in the world. Thanks, Jason. Well, the New Democrats are urging the House of Commons to pass legislation that would make it illegal to spank children or use any physical force to discipline or punish them. Bill C-273 would eliminate Section 43 of the Criminal Code, a provision that allows parents and teachers to use force in limited situations, providing it is reasonable under the circumstances. Joining me now is Peter Julian, NDP MP for New Westminster Burnaby, to talk about uh, this um, this particular proposal. Uh, Peter, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, it's always good to be with you. Yeah, interesting topic. Uh, why do we need this in Canada today? Well, for, first off, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommended repealing this section of the criminal code as it's called action number six. And, and this comes, of course, from the use of physical force that happened in residential schools, the uh, appalling, uh, appalling, horrific conditions that we've heard about, the thousands of victims. These are all part of our legacy, and that's why the Reconciliation Commission openly called for this. Uh, There's also the reality that more than 60 other countries around the world have banned the legalized physical force against children. I mean, you don't have uh, legalized uh, ability to go after seniors or or a person with a disability. There's no legal ability to apply physical force uh, for other Canadians. Uh, and the reason why so many other countries have abolished this is because it just doesn't make sense to make that exception for children. Mm-hmm. And I, I did a press conference this week uh, with uh, the, the head of the of the Yukon NDP and an advocate for children. There's a, a, a horrific, a horrific allegations that came out of an elementary school in in Whitehorse, Yukon, uh, where for a number of years there was uh, physical physical force used against against children and there are a number of lawsuits that are stemming from that that situation so the ambiguity around the criminal code to say you can't use physical force against a senior or or a person with a disability but if there are children you can is is why we we want to follow the practice of other democracies and and make it clear that the, the use of physical force physical punishment of children is not something that is legal in 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 our country and uh, and, and that's why I think it's gained so much momentum as well, because of residential schools and because of the international trend that so many other countries are following. Now, I, certainly, I think uh, people listening to this would would, would not disagree with you at all in regards to what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was saying and 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 some of our and our past history. But isn't the practice of spanking children already? I would say culturally unacceptable, uh, not saying it doesn't happen, but culturally unacceptable already, that it really does happen. Do we really need to sort of um, uh, inscribe that into the criminal code? Well, it, it's, in the, it's in the criminal code right now. It, it, so if, if you're looking at the criminal code, it says you can use physical force against children. Uh, to, to what extent, what guidelines? There have been a number of court cases that are a bit ambiguous. Um, that I agree with you that that culturally we're realizing that physical punishment of children is is something that uh, creates uh, problems not only for the child but for uh, that that child's uh, children later on. And so it is something that uh, fewer and fewer Canadians are engaged in. That's a very good thing. But the fact that it exists, this legalized use of force of physical punishment in the criminal code, is something that continues to send a mixed message to educators and, and to parents. And, and the reason why other countries have, have removed that from their criminal code, so there isn't any more the, the sort of legalized physical force against children, it is because they know the harmful effects that that causes, and they don't want to send a mixed message to anyone. And, and that's, that's why so many people are getting behind this call mm-hmm. uh, to take it out of the criminal code. Sorry, I should have rephr- phrased it as repealed uh, instead of uh, inscribed. Uh, yeah. the, 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 the issue, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of, uh, I'm thinking of a practical sort of situation that I've seen. Let's say you're at a grocery store where I've actually seen, you know, children do act up once in a while. It's the nature of parenting. We see it. Let's just say a parent were to, let's say, smack a child's backside because they were misbehaving. Um, under, based on what you're doing, that technically would be illegal. 
if if this were to move forward, if you repealed uh, the section, that would that would be illegal. Um, it, it, it's no longer got receiving legal continence, but that that's not a, the, the kind of situation that actually arises from this. The the situation at that elementary school in Whitehorse, where mm-hmm. there was. Uh, physical force used against children in in a, in a pretty horrific way. Mm-hmm. Those allegations are quite astounding. What what those what was done to those children? In the same way, we continue to be stunned and appalled by the the violence of the residential schools. Yes. And that's more the exception within the the criminal code. That right right now, that use of physical force is is clearly uh, uh, legal within the criminal code. If you look at court cases, you see a variety of how judges have interpreted it. But if, if it's removed from the criminal code, there's, there's no longer uh, this ambiguity that, yes, that use of physical force, whether in that elementary school in the Yukon or in residential schools, is okay. And, and that's, that's really what we're targeting by repealing uh, that that. That, that article of the criminal code, Article 43, we're not talking about uh, um, uh, a parent who who uh, taps a taps a toddler just to make sure that the, that they're not doing something wrong. We're we're really talking about the kind of systemic abuses that occur mm-hmm. when, in the criminal code, it is legal to use physical force against children. So, what happens next? Just, can you give us a bit of a timeline uh, in in regards to uh, this moving forward? Well, this has been something that uh, a number of people have been calling for for, for years. Corrine's Quest, which is an organization based in New Westminster, uh, Kathy and John Lynn uh, are heading up this this project, and they've got support right across the country. A number of other organizations are calling for it as well. Uh, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it's, it's gaining speed and momentum. But the government has, has, has not prioritized this, and this is part of a broader problem as well, that that we've got a government that, that has a lot of pretty words, but not a lot of action. And, and this is one thing that the, I've already done the work for them. The NDP has already put forward the bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, all they really need to do is incorporate that in upcoming legislation. And it would be a relatively easy thing to do to meet that call to action and to satisfy what so many child advocates are calling for. Uh, simply take out that legalized use of force against children and, and make sure that the child is um, has the same protections in law that a senior might or a person with a disability might or anybody else might have. Peter, thank you so much, my friend. My, my pleasure. Always great to speak with you, Jeff. Well, let's talk about living at home with parents. Well, thanks to student loan debt, rising rents, stagnant wages, and uh, pandemic-related struggles, more millennials are living at home with their parents than at any point uh, this century. The number of adults aged 23 to 37 stayed or returned home to their parents, and that has been steadily rising since uh, the year 2000. Well, our next guest wants to know what impact that's having on family dynamics. It's an issue UBC sociology uh, PhD student uh, Umay Cotter is researching. Uh, Cotter wants to explore how millennials aged uh, 25 to 34 uh, live with their parents. Umay Cotter joins us now. Uh, Umay, thank you for speaking to us today. It's good to be here. Thank you. Uh, tell me, what convinced you to uh, look at this specific uh, topic uh, as as a PhD student? When I first started my PhD here in Canada uh, in 2018, uh, I kept seeing headlines uh, and lots of media coverage about millennials, uh, my peers uh, around my age, um, living together with their parents, um, like uh, quote unquote, longer than they are ex- than they are expected, um, and um, seeing all those like pictures, um, showing parents with um, worrying or um, kind of judging, you know, um, face uh, on their um, looks. So yeah, I um, I was wondering like. Does it have to be this way? Like, do we really know what is going on in their in their households? Mm-hmm. What what impact yeah. do you think uh, adults living at home, millennials living at home between twenty five and thirty four? What kind of things do you think so far? And you're, you're in the midst of your research now. But what kind of things do you think um, parents and adult children are navigating? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm expecting to figure um, lots of um, actually reciprocal relationships. 
and um, in terms of how do they, you know, negotiate that living space all together, um, because they are now like sharing that space as adults um, and young adults, not as you know kids and parents anymore. So I'm trying to figure um, like what happens when when one of them invites guests over. It could be friends, um, romantic or sexual um, like partners. Um, or, um, you know, uh, how do they uh, negotiate uh, household chores, finances, um, you know, what happens when there's a conflict and uh, how do they solve it? Yes, I'm hoping to figure all these, you know, interpersonal dynamics, um, who cooks, who who eats what and who doesn't eat what, like what happens when one of them, you know, have dietary or food preferences, if one of them is vegan or vegetarian, so, like, how do they accommodate each other's needs and wants and expectations in that shared living space? Uh, housing is expensive in the Lower Mainland, um, across Canada and, and North America, but certainly in our major cities. It's also, I guess, a, a broader conversation society is having, is, is, is what is a family today? Is always the nuclear family, and the kids go off to school, and they get on with their life, and they move out. But what is a family and how you define a family uh, in different stages of life is changing as well, isn't it? Of course, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that's one of the areas that I'm really uh, hoping to figure out with my research because, um, as you said, like housing is expensive for sure and there are lots of push and pull factors uh, for people to you know, decide uh, living together. But um, we really don't necessarily know uh, how do they perceive what family means to them and um, in, in such a like changing um, world, uh, especially after the pandemic, mm-hmm. I'm really hoping to figure uh, like um, open open and contribute to the conversations about what family means to um, each person because it's very subjective. Uh, is this the new normal? Is this a permanent change? You think that 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 is that society is going through where where kids are leaving uh, home at a much later time in life than they used to? Well, from, um, from previous research, uh, we know that, and, and from like from the, um, the 2021 census, for example, mm-hmm. we know that um, it's, been, it's been a pattern that um, the percentage of young adults living together with their parents um, has been steadily increasing since 1980s, actually early 1990s, Although the numbers stayed the same from 2016 to 2021 census, um, Statistics Canada indicates uh, the age profile of young adults who lived with their parents continued to shift to older ages. So, for example, in, in like 2021, um, 46% of young adults who lived with their parents were aged 25 to 34 compared with, you know, 38% of the same age group in 2001. So in only like 20 years of um, time frame, we see that um, almost half of um, this age range, which is my age group from 25 to 34, um, is now living together with at least one of their parents in Canada. Is Do you think this is a North America-wide phenomenon and less so in other countries, or do you think this is just a something that the, uh, I guess, Western nations, North America and Europe are seeing? Um, actually, we know that uh, we know from statistics that it, uh, it's a global, it's a very global phenomenon. Um, it, like the statistics show that um, during the pandemic, um, especially lots of uh, young adults have been also returning back to their parents' place uh, in the United States as well, um, and also in Europe too. Um, but not necessarily a Western context, I'd say, um, like. In Turkey, for example, uh, where I'm from, uh, we know that um, increasing number of people uh, have been living together with their parents as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, somebody wanted to participate in your study. Uh, is there a way for them to contact you? Um, yes, I would actually love to hear from them. Um, it, it, they can reach, reach to me with my email address, actually. Uh, it's umay.kadar at ubc.ca. ubc.ca. So let me repeat that. Umay, that's U-M-A-Y dot Kader, mm-hmm. K-A-D-E-R, Umay Kader, 
at ubc.ca. That's correct. Thank All you right. for uh, confirming. No, yeah. of course. And if for some reason somebody has missed that, you can also see, email me and I can pass that along to you as well. It's jazz, J-A-S, at C-K-N-W uh, dot com. Uh, Uma, I thank you so much for your um, your time today. Fascinating study. Look forward to uh, your findings and look forward to having you on again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Goodbye now is over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's All right, this week we look at Harry and Meghan. Are they the love story of our time or a bunch of whiny millennials? And is it time we mandate a four-day work week in B.C.? Joining us today, our regular rap panel, Leah Halive is a TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey, author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. Hi, Hi, Howdy. All right. Well, thousands tuned in uh, yesterday to watch the first three episodes of Harry and Meghan, the highly anticipated Netflix uh, docuseries about Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex. The docuseries gives unprecedented insight into UK royal life as well as the couple's relationship, including footage captured on Meghan's phone of Harry proposing to her in the gardens at Kensington Palace and photographs of the couple on their first ever vacation. Now, although there are no direct accusations made against the royal family, the couple did shed light on the relentless media attention they faced and the pain and suffering many women face when they marrying into the royal family. Now, a lot of folks have watched it. Piers Morgan was one who was already commenting before any of this stuff came out. Here's Piers Morgan's thoughts on Harry and Meghan, the docuseries. How much damage can they inflict on our royal family, on our monarchy? How can they make it all about them? How, how can they continue to play the victims? when they live in such unparalleled luxury, the other side of the world. This gruesome twosome only survived by cashing in on what's left of their royal status now. I said it before, I'll say it again tonight, King Charles should strip them of all their remaining titles and cast them out from any connection to the royal family. How could any of them trust them as far as I could throw them? Because without it, they're just whining millennial windbags with a permanent victim complex, knowing that victimhood is what makes them all the money. <laughs> let it out, Piers, let it out. <laughs> well, Leah, let me start with you. What did you think of the docu-series and this whole hubbub? Because I think there's three episodes, three more coming. What do you yeah. think of this whole Harry and I Meghan mean, thing? Gruesome twosome, that says it all right now, I think. I, okay, I watched it. Now, I was very interested to see what it was all about. It was kind of promoted very different. It was promoted that they're going to have all this salacious information and you're going to get the inside scoop. And really, it was much ado about nothing. It was just their relationship. I kind of was like, wow, really? Okay. I, I'm not a Megan fan. I'll be out there. I'll, I'll document that. I never was from day one. I don't really like her. I think she's fake. I like Harry. I think he's grown up and he's, you know, doing a lot better for himself. But, but Megan, I just can't jump on that train. I thought it was a good love story, to be honest. I think they do love each other. I think maybe him more than her. I think that it was a nice intake of, you know, their relationship, but really it wasn't, it was promoted to be like, we're going to learn about the Royals and all the inside stuff of what was going on. And it wasn't, it wasn't there. It just was more fluff than anything, really. Sarah, your thoughts on, on this Royal love story. Pierce Morgan should take it and blank it as far as I'm (laughs) concerned. You know what? I mean, here's, here's, here's the thing is, I mean, you've got a Royal family where Lady Hussey uh, last week was like, Lady Hussey. And where, where are you from? No, you couldn't possibly be from England because you're too dark. You know, yeah. I mean, give me a... This is this is what this whole family has all been about. For it's years and years, I've got a girlfriend, actually, who lives in England. She moved there when she was in grade uh, about 11 years old, 12 years old. She has actually dated members of the extended royal family. Really? She, yeah, and she... I have the, oh no I she, she's you dresses, said that she's, really exactly really? she's actually worn dresses of mine to royal parties my dresses have had a better time than I have but that's another story altogether what I'm saying though is I mean to, to me if you met her today I mean she sounds completely British but when she was there meeting people it was always oh where are you from oh oh right okay you're not from here are you and that is still very pervasive Honestly, here's the thing with Piers Morgan. He's making a fortune about whining and sniveling about them. They've moved mm-hmm. to, as, as pointed out, they've moved to California. They're doing their own thing. 
the British press makes a fortune off of talking about them. They are not, this last two years, they haven't been talking about the royal family. Harry's, they've been doing their own kind of thing. But the British press thrives on this. This is all about the British press. Hmm. And of course, the very stuffy people that cannot understand what this (laughs) terrible American actress with the dark complexion is doing. Rubbing elbows with Charles and Camilla. <laughs> you know, interesting note, actually, when you talk about the the, the bigger issue of, of the monarchy uh, post-Queen Elizabeth, is that I think uh, BC Ferries won't be displaying um, King Charles' uh, picture. Uh, wow. Because of uh, they want they're, they're talking about reconciliation. One of the things about reconciliation mm-hmm. is not to be recognizing monarchy, uh, you know, representing England. So, to my understanding, they won't be displaying uh, uh, King Charles's picture. I guess that's a, the the next question: Does the monarchy still last? I know King Charles is there, and, and we're talking about all this. King Charles. But, but but in regards to legitimacy, Leah, do you think um, you know uh, maybe uh, Harry's brother? Uh, and sister-in-law Kate, uh, they 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 take over. They they you know they generally have a very good <laughs> reputation. They're prim and proper. They do they they do the they're stuff. They're boring. That... <laughs> they're stuffy too. Yeah, you're they're right. Boring, uh, and that's why everybody's fascinated stuffy. with Harry. That's why people are fascinated with Harry and Meghan because they're actually interesting. William yeah, and I guess Kate. They... I mean, good lord. God, they, but they have to be because he's next in line for the throne. So you're told you have to behave right. So you know that they have to be on their best behavior all the time. I found it interesting when they in the documentary where they asked all of the royals what they thought of Meghan and Harry getting married, and they all all were like, "It's fantastic." They all had the exact same answer because they're coached right to tell the exact same answer, and that was Kate that answered that as well. And I thought, well, yes, you look. She's got to be stuffy. They have to be. They're going to be king and queen in the future. You can't be entertaining and interesting if you're going to take that. I mean, look at King but Charles, right? They're, they're going to have to pull themselves together. It is the 21st century. I mean, yeah. I think that there's more. I think there's a lot more jealousy, actually, from coming from William and Kate. And I know I'm going to get the hate mail. I don't care. <laughs> William and Kate are dull. Harry and, and Meghan are much more, you know, savvy about how, Like, people showed up to see them. They were glamorous. Kate and William are just kind of like, oh, great. I mean, seriously, <laughs> I'm 58. I feel like they're my grandparents. What happened to these two? Let's fo- talk about everyday folks who do work 9 to 5. More than 900 workers across 33 businesses in the U.S., U.K., and Ireland tested a four-day work week uh, this year, and none of them are going back to a five-day model, according to data from one of the world's largest experiments to test the shortened work week. Now, the six-month pilot, which ran for most companies from April uh, through October, but some of them went all the way until uh, this week. Uh, they worked on a 180-100 model, basically meaning workers receive 100% of their pay for 80% of the time and maintain 100% productivity. The initiative is led by a non four-day non four-day week nonprofit in partnership with the researchers at Cambridge, Boston College, and Oxford University. Full results will be out in feb- February. Um, but generally speaking, the workers that these companies like the four-day work week. Uh, Leah, let me go to you first. Your thoughts on this. Are you supportive of something like this? Do you think it's time we mandate it in British Columbia? Absolutely. I mean, statistics show that productivity goes up when work hours go down because of the work-life balance. I think everybody should have this because if you had, say, three days off, you can do one day of errands, the rest, you know, the other two, you can enjoy yourself and then you'll want to go back to work. You won't feel like it's such a dredge on Mondays. I do like, though, the Monday to Thursday, eight hours. There is some that are doing Monday to Thursday, 10 hours. That Mm. I'm not on board with. (laughs) at all so i definitely think everybody should get on board with this i think honestly everybody be happier there won't be big fights everywhere i think people will be more relaxed i'm all for it uh sarah now you're a real estate agent your hours are all over the place i mean it wouldn't work for for your business (laughs) would it nobody nobody cares about phoning me at nine o'clock at night they're like hey what are you doing i want you to look up this that and the next thing I mean, that's just, I made the choice to be a realtor. I love what I do, right? So that's fine. I mean, I I end up working the hours when everybody else is off. So that, you know, on top of the hours when everybody else is on as well. So I work all the time. But here's the thing is, I mean, it's, it sounds like a great idea. I don't, obviously this can't work like in things like retail or no restaurants. So So there's an entire swath that that doesn't work for. And then, you know, and then the thing is, well, I mean, how do we actually measure that productivity? Are we 
Are we sure that as much is getting done in those four eight-hour days as five eight-hour days? I mean, some people will be, you know, like, this is great, and I'm going to get everything done. Other people will be like, this is awesome. I'm just going to do four days worth of work <laughs> in four days, and then, you know, I'm filing my nails while they're dragging the lake, the old Elvis Costello song. Um, but, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, if, if it ended up being longer hours for a day, that's going to make a mess of a lot of single parents' lives because there's yeah. daycare and all that kind of stuff. I think it's really a case by case basis. As I recall, it was not it was popular at Vancouver City Hall when they did it. Not so popular with the general public that was like, "What do you mean you're only available 4 days a week?" Yeah. Well, come on. And you know? that and, and that's part of it. How do you I think you raised a very good point. How do you um basically say this is a success or it's not a success? Is it profitability in the on the private sector side? Uh yeah. is it uh, uh you know, can you see productivity in some way gauge it? Perhaps. Uh, well, but the stress it, levels too, right? If you're yeah. like all of a sudden, mm-hmm. if, if you're sort of like, okay, well, you're, you have to now do five days of work within four hours. Cramming four into four. You're only going to yeah. do that in eight hours. Some people aren't going to react very well to that. Some people will instead, they will be working that, those extra hours and feeling more stress as opposed to having, you know, working that But it's supposed rate. to be four days of work, not five crammed into four. So yeah. technically I mean, it's supposed I can, to be, I can but see, will it be? I, can, I don't know. I can see things that, you know, because we're seeing such, so much more of a hybrid situation in a lot of yeah. offices, it'll be, you know, three working days in the home. office and two days from home. And a lot of people find that they get a lot more done at work, at home because, you know, mm-hmm. they don't have to worry about travel. You don't have to commute. Getting gas. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think right. that we're, we're having this broad uh, societal conversation on what is work and how important is it to me and, and can I be as productive uh, working from home. Personally, like, you know, I guess the show, I could do the show from home and I did the, sh- the show from home, but I mm-hmm. still like driving to work, being seeing at work everybody. and seeing oh. everybody in, in newsrooms and broadcasting work that way. But for other jobs, you don't necessarily need to. So that's, and, I guess. And that, it's true because, you yeah. know, I'm a realtor and we I used to like be in the office all the time and then COVID hit. And even though COVID, I mean, is still a thing and people, you know, offices for the most part are open, people are still sort of working from home. And I do miss that involvement chatting with other realtors like during the day. I mean, I still see people, obviously. I'm still busy, but you do miss a little bit of that engagement and sort of um, that bonding. I mean, we had our Christmas party last night, the office Christmas party. I don't know who who most of these people are. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, Where ladies, you you forget I have no idea who you are. There you go. Ladies, right. we've run out of time. As always, it moves so fast this segment. Thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You guys too. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.